You go to a place that you've been taught to be afraid of and people who you've taught you've been told to be afraid of your whole life. And you realize, oh, the, these very people have lessons to teach you that are invaluable. A lot of them had to do with the perspective from which you look at any given struggle and when you start the clock. So yes. if you start the clock on the story of Northern Ireland, for example, the latest bombing, if you ta start the clock there, then the Irish are the problem. The terrorism is the problem. They would say, start the clock in the 1600s. <laughs> Absolutely. And the same with Northern Ireland, the same with Belfast, and the same with Palestine, the same with Israel. Journalist Laura Flanders on the season premiere of the Janosato Show. I'm Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. I love Laura Flanders' tagline for her show. This is the show where people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it. With me today is a woman who I could think of no one better to have this conversation with than Laura Flanders. Laura, welcome to the show. Oh, it's so great to be with you, Janice. What a treat. Thank you. Same here. I read the articles that you had written about this Israel-Hamas war. I listened to podcasts you had done on it. It just occurred to me that what I was hearing from you and the perspective that I was hearing from you, even among those who are trying to be more objective and open, was still so unique. The Laura Flanders Show is the place where the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it. Thank you. Let's talk both about the people who are doing it in terms of journalism and, unfortunately, the people who are living it in terms of the war and what we know about that. Here's the question. How do we talk about the Israel-Hamas war? As journalists, we have this phrase that we have to be objective. We have to obviously be well-sourced. We have a fairness doctrine where we have to talk about both sides and hear from both sides. I'm not always sure about that both side concept, but that's the way we look at it. But where I'm concerned is contextion, and I don't hear us coming at it from that point. I came to journalism not through journalism school. I came through experience, through journalists in my family, and through wanting to go where the action was. So in the 1980s, I spent a lot of time in war zones, 
Northern Ireland. I did go to the Middle East, Central America. You name it. I found ways to get there, often as a photographer, ironically. I went with a group called Madre, which supports women's organizations around the world, and went as their photographer for their fundraising appeals. Appeals used to go in the mail, and you would receive those pictures, and sometimes those photographs were mine. So it was a way that I found to travel and to see places in conflict up for myself. Then I worked at FAIR, the Media Watch Group. And during that period, which was the late 80s, we saw Ronald Reagan rescind the fairness doctrine. This was policy required, not of people, but of institutions, that your radio station, your television station, your cable channel had to show some balance over the course of its recording day and week. I didn't go to journalism school, so I was not force-fed this notion of objectivity. I've never believed in it. I've always felt it was an illusion. We can't hope as people to be perfectly objective. We can hope to be fair. So I strive for fairness, and I strive for understanding, and I strive to do my research before I form my opinion, or at least to test my opinion with research, and ideally with going to the place that I'm reporting on. So all of that being said, how do you cover or talk about the situation in the Middle East from the Catskills? Because I produced my show from Smallwood in Sullivan County. It seemed to me that what we needed was, you know, to go back to that tagline, the, people, the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. What we seem to be witnessing is the idea that you cannot simultaneously care for the Israelis and the Palestinians. But we can figure out how to do that. And we can figure out, I think, how to hold both in our hearts and to express that at a time when, for the most part, people are choosing a side. We love our binaries at every level, right? So you're either for this one or you're for that one. We also, and this is a much longer conversation, but I think we are hard up for models of responding to a grievance or to a pain or to a hurt that isn't military, that isn't carceral, that isn't punitive, that isn't vengeful. We know how to pick up a weapon. A lot of people have them in their homes in this country. We know how to look strong, and our leaders believe that they have to fight to show how strong they are. We don't have a lot of models of other stuff, of other ways of responding. So for me, when Josh Pauls wrote the letter that he did about why he resigned after 11 years dealing with arms transfers, he worked in the arms division of the State Department. 11 years, I've seen a lot of really dodgy arms transfers as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. But this one pushed him too far, and he explained in his letter beautifully why. And that was, I felt, worth bringing to public attention because... He did it. He wrote his letter. He made one appearance, brief appearance on public television, and I never saw him again. So I said, let's bring him back. Let, let's bring him back. Let's bring him to the public eye and let him speak in full. And I will say to this date, which is he quit on the, I think it was the 18th, and today we're speaking more than 10 days later, has yet to be interviewed at any greater length than I interviewed him over 10 days ago. It's almost unconscionable. I love the way you say that. We love our binaries. It's also our anti-expertise. 
crisis that this country has been going through for too long. And so a man who had that depth of expertise and also was, to my mind, part of the problem and willing to be part of the problem, it was even too much for him. That's right. That's the part that makes it so extraordinary. I love the way you answered that question, going to really your own roots in this, being in war zones and particularly being in Ireland. So the troubles, what did that tell you that you bring every place else you go since you've been part of that. Oh, well, you're, you're, you put your finger on it. I do believe I learned just about everything that is useful <laughs> that I you bring to my work in those years in Northern Ireland. One thing was the value of going to a place. Like I grew up, my father was British, my mother was American. I grew up largely in the UK. I got involved in the anti-war movement. I got involved in a peace protest in the outskirts of London, protesting the arrival of U.S. cruise missiles at a U.S. Air Force base at Greenham Common. And there I was protesting militarism, and Irish women said, hello, (laughs) you're so worried about American cruise missiles. What about British troops on the streets of Belfast just one hour away by plane? I thought they had a very good point. And at that point, I was also very curious about feminism and nonviolence and pacifism and I think my senior paper at college was on the question of whether the women of the IRA were feminists or not. So I had been following the story from afar, but nothing prepared me for actually going there. And as I'm sure you know, you go to a place that you've been taught to be afraid of and people who you've taught you've been told to be afraid of your whole life. And you realize, oh, the, these very people have lessons to teach you that are invaluable. So can I list every single one? No, but a lot of them had to do with the perspective from which you look at any given struggle and when you start the clock. So if you start the clock on the story of Northern Ireland, for example, the latest bombing, an IRA bombing in Brighton, say, there was one that targeted conservative members of parliament during their convention. If you start the clock there, then the Irish are the problem. The terrorism is the problem. They would say, start the clock in the 1600s. Absolutely. (laughs) And the same with Northern Ireland, the same with Belfast, and the same with Palestine, the same with Israel. Yes. Do you start the clock on October 7th, that horrendous terror attack by Hamas, or do you go back and say, what's the grievance that brought this situation about? What's the grievance that's been festering? And I think... You know, we all share a part in having thought we could just let this go on festering. We all do. We've all shared a part in allowing arms sales to the region and to the explosion of a military industrial complex around the world that we are the leaders as Americans, the leading force in. We've all played a part in that. And what were we thinking? That wouldn't explode eventually? That wouldn't boil over into this kind of hatred and war? I think that was my experience in Northern Ireland, is there are roots here that go back way before where you start the the clock is political. The idea of the troubles in Britain, I mean, in Ireland, they call it the trouble with England. We all have heard this is the troubles, and of all things, 
it was the British who were referring to the people that they were trying to dominate as the problem. And what kind of a word is troubles? 3,000 people died in that conflict. May not seem like an enormous amount to us now, but those were people dying daily in a small population on the streets of an urban area of the world, of Western Europe. This was not troubles. This was war. This was a grievance. When I arrived there were in Northern Ireland, there were troops on the streets and snipers on the rooftops, and troubles is not the word I would have used. Wow. So much. Every time you say something, it triggers so many other things. (laughs) Trigger warning. Yeah, trigger (laughs) warning, because here we are talking about 3,000 people not seeming like a lot, which is we have to stop and recognize what we've just said when we say that 3,000 people are not a lot. It's not you saying, and this is the way it's, we have just so normalized terror and Whose terror, whether or not it's terror across the board or only when some people fight back, is it terror or fight forward? Is it terror or whatever? But if we just contextualize this whole thing about where do we start the clock? Who's committing the reprisal? Always the, exactly. I, the Israelis are always committing a reprisal attack. Whoever gets to be doing the reprisal isn't really responsible for starting things off. The British would always do reprisals. How convenient. Exactly right. When I look at this, I look at the crisis of indigenous peoples worldwide. And when I am hearing the phrase that Hamas is a terrorist organization and the Israelis who are in certain parts are settlers – What I'm hearing is a repetition of the language used to describe and disparage indigenous people here defending their homeland against the colonization by Britain and every other European entity of their continent, what we now call North America, where we are so into determined forgetfulness I hear that language being repeated where every time a European group wins, it's called settling. Every time an indigenous group, Cherokee, Shinnecock, Mohawk, whenever they win, it's called a massacre. And we are bringing that language to this current conversation once again. And when we come back, more with our guest here, Laura Flanders, joining us on the show. And we will talk about this kind of contextualization and the weight of words and how we express ourselves. Before we go to break, I'm going to read from Mark Twain writing about the French Revolution in 1889. The book a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. There were two reigns of terror, if we could but remember and consider it. The one wrought murder in hot passions, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon a thousand persons, the other upon a hundred million. But Our shudders are all for the horrors of the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas, what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with lifelong death from hunger, cold, 
insult, cruelty, and heartbreak. A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror that we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over. But all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakable, bitter, and awful terror, which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves. Mark Twain, writing about the French Revolution, 1889, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest today, Laura Flanders. Laura is the host and executive producer of The Laura Flanders Show, which airs on PBS stations nationwide. I I was really struck by your bio, and I kept highlighting things where, my goodness, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. She is an Izzy Award-winning independent journalist, a New York Times bestselling author, and the recipient of the Pat Mitchell Lifetime Achievement Award from the Women's Media Center. And I was on the founding advisory board of the Women's Media Center. Thank you. And then it goes, thank you. And here we are. I've listened to your show for a very long time. And one of the things that I appreciate is how broad your, not just your area of interest, but your area of expertise. And the conversations that you have are very spacious. And and I'm struck by even our conversation so far today, massive continents <laughs> and, and centuries of history. And that's you. Thank you. My grandmother had a phrase, in this world, all things are one. And she really drilled that into my cousin and me, her only two grandchildren. And then my grandfather had another phrase, and his phrase was, in this world too, let no one contaminate your mind. And I have, through my lifetime of attempts to contaminate my mind, I've had to keep those two phrases really close Mm. to what we do. And the theme of this show is race and courage. And with that, I was anguished by it saying, how can you purport to do a show about race and courage and not do a show about the Israeli-Hamas conflict? Because that comes about in what is the issue in globally, made to be the issue of race because of the colonization by European countries. And in the last episode, you said it depends on where you start the clock. I will never not think of where (laughs) you start the clock. And I think it's important to understand that the clock on European not the age of exploration and those grandiose terms that we use to mask what really took place, but the age of global terror begins with the Catholic Church, a pope in the 1440s, I believe it was Pope 1443, but it's in that period, who was tired of the European nations warring against each other and decided to take a map of the then-known world, and he literally supposedly spread out this map and decided France 
I give you this, the insanity of the very concept that one man sits down with a map of the world and decides that he is supposed to apportion the world. Is that where the doctrine of dominion comes from? I am not sure about that, but I do know that it is this one pope who sets this into motion. And it is about 1442, which is important because these things take time. 50 years on the clock to the date is Columbus. Now, he's not the first one who sails, but in terms of this global, global terrorism that is colonization worldwide from with Europe at the center being given permission to spread it out. And I'm, I'll just quickly say, because we're talking about this clock and because I think it's important, is that as he apportions Portugal, you get this, Spain, you get this. He then, when you read Columbus's logbook, the end introductory pages to Columbus's logbook are fascinating. And I urge people to really read it because he lays it out like a business plan. And he talks about what his work will be and who he's beholden to. And in those, his investors. That's right. And his investors are Queen Isabella. And what he owes her is she gets title to any land where he touches down. She gets title. So she is entitled to the taxes that then will be eked out from those people that he's just destroyed their homes Mm -hmm. and taken away their countries. Mm -hmm. And he's also beholden to the Catholic Church Mm -hmm. for whom he has to claim the souls, which means they will get the tithe that in money. That's what the Catholic Church will get from this anything but religious no kidding. enterprise. And that is what we are still 530 years later struggling with. And the Middle East is put a pin on that in the sense exactly. that, exactly. again, we began by saying, how do we come to this as journalists? And I think there is a role of journalists to say this one is at war with that one and it's over there somewhere, nothing too much to do with you. And why don't you pick one of two sides and we can have fights over the parsing the language in any given side's documents. The bigger question, it seems to me, is how do we as a people grapple with the injustice of our world as we have made it? The many injustices who's benefited, who has been stolen from, who has been robbed, who has had violence committed against them, who has committed violence. And when we talk about the violence of colonization, what we're looking at in the Middle East today, as a British person, it was the frigging British who went in and drew those lines, somehow thought that would be a good way of organizing life among the Jordanians and Syrians and Palestinians. And then after World War II, dumped the Israelis into that situation, knowing full well they had already promised the land to other people. So they set the Jews in Israel up for this kind of a disaster. And the details are way more complex than what I've gotten into, but that's the essence of the story, that it was a set-up job by colonial powers. Were there historic roots of the so-called Hebrew people in the region? Absolutely. 
But if you go, if you had gone, I don't know if you could still go, but if when I went to the West Bank, for example, and spoke to people over many generations, I remember speaking to one group of one family that spanned four generations, the oldest family, the oldest, oldest generation remembered living in peace with their Jewish kibbutz relatives and friends, people who shared donkeys with them, people who shared orchards with them. There was not an inbuilt, inbuilt person-to-person racial, if you want to put it any other way, racial grievance. The grievance became political based on political actions by state actors. So I think, again, we're given this racial picture, this racial binary of Palestinians versus Israelis, Jews versus Arabs. It need not have been that way. And colonialism set that up, and our reporting has covered it that way since. And that serves to give us no roadmap from here. None. Where do we go from here? If we continue to think of each of ourselves and each other in these strictly policed boundaries, whether they're boundaries of race or boundaries of national, national identity, I think we're in trouble. There's only so many identities we can be at war with, and most of us are many identities. We have specific experiences. They're different, but we also bump up against each other and meet, and we have to figure out how to address, how to reckon with the grievances that we bring to those meetings. Does that make any sense? It makes more than sense because one of the things that, and this is difficult, but I'm going to say it, that I have always been concerned about our conversations about the Holocaust. And it was always difficult to talk about the Holocaust because we had to deal with crazy people who were trying to deny the Holocaust. Correct. We couldn't have a real conversation about it. But Number of people killed by the Germans was 11 million, the largest single number grouping of which were the 6 million Jews. We have now, in this kind of inadequate understanding of what happened, we are ignoring 5 million people who were killed. What good does it do the souls of the six million to ignore the five million laying with them. And if we talked about, yes, the six million, but the 11 million, then we might better understand another phrase of my grandmother's today for me, tomorrow for you, that it could happen to any of us. For any reason, the Germans had a huge list of things that entitled them to kill other people. Yeah. We're talking about a state of mind. We're yes. talking about a way of behaving in the world. And I look at you as you tell this story and I think, how generous are you not to be counting the millions dead in the Middle Passage, the <laughs> millions dead from slavery? and chattel slavery in this country. Because the idea that there is only one Holocaust or the idea that if we're going to show you respect and grieve for you, it means we don't even mention what happened to us is a problem. We can. This is a place of meeting. And we've seen it in the civil rights movement. We yes. saw Jews and African Americans in the leadership of that movement. 
we saw Dr. King and um, Rabbi Heschel and activism that spanned that, that saw those connections, that supremacist thinking, be it Aryan German or white American, will get us killed. (laughs) In the 30s, to your point, in the 30s, when the St. Louis, that ship, was turned around and refused entry. Full of Jewish refugees. Full of Jewish refugees. And that, too, is another loaded word. Why are some people migrants and others refugees? Okay, why are some asylum seekers and undocumented? undocumented? And that's Aliens. when we're being polite. Okay, we have to look at these words yeah. that we are being manipulated into using, and that's exactly what it is. But I mentioned the 30s because there were no Jewish Congress people in congressmen in the U.S. Congress. The one congressman, Arthur Mitchell, was, I think, from Chicago. I didn't plan to talk about Mm -hmm, this. mm -hmm. So I think he was from the Chicago area, and I apologize. I'll correct it at the end of the show in a tag if I'm incorrect. But he was this African-American congressman, colored congressman, Negro congressman, called everything but a child of God congressman, was essentially the one defending Jewish people as well as African-American people. He was the one defending indigenous yeah. people. He was the one who had to speak for all. And that, to me, is really what we should be talking about. It just underscores what we were saying, that the what we are very good in our American journalism at talking about identity. We are much less good at talking about ideology. What Arthur Mitchell was speaking up against was an ideology of segregation, of white supremacy, of anti-Semitism, of our people are better than your people, going back to the doctrine of dominion that certain people have a right to go and exploit the planet and make the desert bloom when others don't Mm -hmm. and when others were living there, in fact, in the first place, etc., etc. That sense of there is a hierarchy of human. And we have done terrible things to one another because of that. And terrible things are happening right now in the Middle East because of that. Because of that. I have to say that I think in this moment something is breaking open. I think we are at a turning point. I think that this, that we have carried into the 21st century, ends here. I I don't see how we come back from this thinking our humanity is intact. We are, as a world, watching what we always said we would never watch happen again. And we're watching it there. We're watching it in Congo. We're watching it in Afghanistan. It's not just happening in the Middle East. We have focus only in one place. We have room, as it were, usually in the media for one story. But I don't know whether you're feeling it, Janice, but I'm feeling it, that something is so broken with how we interact with each other through states that people I think are getting it. If we don't want to just burn up as a planet, we have got to make some fundamental change as humans in how we react to in how we act to one another. The conversation with Josh Paul is one with someone who believed who spent eleven years in the State Department trying to improve the laws to insert more human rights consciousness into the regulations that govern U.S. arms sales. 
And we have a fascinating conversation, actually, in the uncut version of the conversation where I say, I don't really believe in rules of war. I think they, we are, they're fig leaves that we use to comfort ourselves as we begin to go to war. At the end of the day, governments tend to do whatever the heck they like in the name of revenge and defense and reprisal. Just today, I saw the news from North Carolina yesterday, where Jewish Voice for Peace blocked a highway in North Carolina. And I was just on those highways, six lanes, mm -hmm. no easy thing to do outside of Durham, Raleigh, and the Triangle area. They blocked the highway. Again, this is courage. This is race and courage right yes. there. Are everywhere shutting down congressional offices, sitting in the Capitol, sitting in Boston, sitting in Philly, sitting in New York City at the Grand Central Station. I am blown away by their courage. We started by saying, how do we talk about this? They're talking about it. Are they, is everybody using the exact right language all the right time? Maybe not, but we could either spend our time parsing the grammar of this statement versus that statement, or we could say, great, we are having this conversation. Let's have it loud, and we need to be able to hear each other, so please let's have a ceasefire so that we can have this conversation. I don't see any other way out of this. I do not see what the Israeli military, and it's not all the people, but the Israeli military have as a picture of the day after. What is that day after picture? You tell me. When we come back, more with our guest, Laura Flanagan, here on the Janice Adams Show. I am a 28-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing, came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Laura Flanders. And right before the break, Laura asked the question about the day after. Repeat the question, please. What does the Israeli government believe is the picture of the day after whatever they are doing right now in Gaza. What do they think that looks like? I think in these last minutes that we have, I'd like to talk about what we're talking about and to define our terms in a way that gives the audience a takeaway so that we can all figure out for ourselves, what are we talking about? What do we mean. Right before the show, we taped the show, I was having a conversation with someone about the fact that the FBI director, Christopher Ray has said what you spoke to earlier, the 
this incredible rise in anti-Semitism and that it is greater as a rise than any other religious group. But we know that Islamophobia is always high, so that it those numbers probably have no place to go but down, as opposed to increase. And let's not forget, we've seen one Arab family lose a member, a six-year-old kid in Chicago. Yes, just because the landlord de- realized that they were Muslim and decided that it was okay to kill them. I thought maybe we should talk about what anti-Semitism is. And for that definition, I urge people to go where I went, which was to the Holocaust Museum for their actual definition. The the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. has its site, which is www.ushnhm, as in memorial, m as in museum.org. And its definition, short definition, is anti-Semitism is prejudice against or hatred of Jews. And you can learn more about the history of the word and Nazi anti-Semitism in the Holocaust encyclopedia on their site. I also was concerned with, therefore, what is Islamophobia? I didn't find it in the same terms, but a site called Islamicity, I-S-L-A-M-I-C-I-T-Y dot org, and it is not a fringe site. It is a site that people from 225 nations have membership connection to and support, and they phrased it in terms of who was committing it. And they wrote their definition in the wake of the tragedy in New Zealand, where, which was unusual for New Zealand to have this kind of violent outburst where people, people were just slaughtered. And so they spoke about it in that way. But you can find absolute definitions of what anti-Semitism is and what Islamophobia is. One of the concerns that I have as we look at how we define this and where we go and what our context is, therefore, looking at these definitions, what happens when we conflate, which I've been hearing recently, and I understand it. My goodness, I'm an African-American woman. I have lived under siege all my life where you don't know if you walk into a store, if someone is going to insult you, assault you, or whatever. I have been not in a war zone. I've been in the United States as a person covering a civil rights demonstration where we were literally shot through a stained glass window by what was later found to be only possible for those Bullets, the trajectory of the bullet to come from the cupola on the top of the police station directly across the street. So I'm not playing here with this kind of thing. It's the hatred that we really do need to look at and the entitlement to hatred. But how we do we define these things? So here we have Jewish people right now, I have heard an official in Britain arguing with a BBC reporter that 
the BBC reporter needed to understand that we are fighting Nazis now. That was exact. And that was the pronunciation he gave. We are fighting Nazis. No, I can just say factually. But I understand, as I'm sure you do, Laura, why someone would feel that way. This has been a propaganda strategy of this Israeli government. It's not unique to them, but it has been a strategy specifically of the Netanyahu administration and the right wing backing that administration to Nazify the Palestinian people and to plug into the legitimate fears and anxieties of Jewish Israelis that they are in a life and death struggle against the oppressor. Now, where does this sound familiar Right. Let's be clear. The Palestinians are not the Nazis in Germany who are the majority, who are in power, who run the military. You're a minority. You're being herded off into pogroms. You're being herded off into concentration camps. That is a shedding of a massive difference. This is beyond a shedding of a difference. But it's familiar in that this country, how many times have we been told that, for example, African-Americans are taking over from white people when you see a tiny decrease in the overrepresentation of white people in any given institution it's perceived as a takeover or a friend specifically of mine. when you have one black man in 246 years who is who becomes president it's blacks are taking over the country and you are now in danger and under siege and the purchase of weapons skyrockets and you elect Donald Trump. That man. (laughs) So we're familiar with this. And I think we're also familiar just before this began, we were in the middle of a fight about critical race theory and around censorship in, in libraries and schools and this idea that white vulnerability, vulnerable children, the attack on vulnerable children, um, that, that this teaching of truth was an attack on vulnerable children. Now we've, again, we've been talked about vulnerable children for as long as I've been alive. The gay people threatened vulnerable children. Trans people threatened vulnerable children. Feminists threatened vulnerable children. Who's been threatening vulnerable children this whole time? Usually the military, the church, you name it, the, the employer. We could get into what makes children vulnerable, but often it's lack of health care, food, peace, policy clean water and air. Make it is that, not Yeah, there are policy feminist issues trans that people have... drag queer people and exact. teachers exactly. but so i'm suggesting that we don't forget everything we were just learning about how our language is abused and manipulated for this situation that we remember oh sometimes it's in the interest of the powerful to present themselves as the victims sometimes people's fears and historic fears and anxieties and maybe fears because of how they're actually living can be manipulated and weaponized against another group with whom, if they just joined forces, they might be strong enough to actually threaten the power establishment. This is the ancient story of American history, which you've written about so beautifully, but divide and conquer is the thing, and we have seen it over and over. And so we shouldn't be shocked by it, and we shouldn't be so surprised. But we certainly know better than to absorb this kind of rhetoric, the Palestinians or the Nazis, without thinking twice. Take a moment. Cease fire. <laughs> yes, that's takeaway number two is that we have to think about the things that we're hearing. Maya Angelou very famously said after 9-11, she said, this is the time for thinking people to think. Yes, there you go. And only recently, 
President Biden has admitted that the United States did not think in terms of its response. He said we made mistakes and that for that he should be applauded. I, I will say I have obviously criticisms of the president. That's healthy. Yes. But he has said things that other presidents haven't said in this context. And he was it was important that he said that. Mm-hmm. And significant. And while we're talking about 9-11s, I heard a calculation not so long ago. I think it was on the Ezra Klein podcast. People have referred to 9-11 in this context. And people, have, I think some Netanyahu maybe said, somebody said that the, the attack of October 7th by Hamas was like, given proportion to population, 30 9-11s. Somebody calculated, as of the point at which I think there were 8,000 dead in Gaza, what the population, what the equivalent was there, and came up with the number of 400 9-11s proportionate to that population. 400. 400. And at the same point, why are we being manipulated into the relativity of numbers when the behavior is wrong, period? When, and when we started by talking about how 3,000 yes, wasn't that many. Exactly. What if we just put the faces, the names, the stories put to those Put your numbers? mother's name on, on that list. Put your sister's name. Put your name on that list. Your and, ear is to the rubble trying to hear the voice of your child. Exactly. I can't come this is a human. This is a moment of devastation for human rights worldwide. So how do we talk about what we're talking about? How, at this point, not only the issue of whether or not you're fighting the Nazis, which you're not, at a certain point you may have wished that Jews had been able to fight the Nazis, but because of what the Nazis were doing and the domination, they were not able to. Some they were victimized. Of course people fought back. And in in every way possible, they may not have had the weaponry. That doesn't mean that they're not fighting back. And if they fought for their lives, that's what they were fighting for. And other people joined with them in fighting for their lives. So we remember that. But right now, we're also getting the phrase that to talk about being pro-Palestine, I heard this the other day listening to a guest on The View on ABC. I believe it was Donnie Deutsch. And he said to talk about being pro-Palestine is simply another way of saying that you are anti-Israel, which means that you're anti-Israeli, which means that you're anti-Semitic. Again, we've heard this before. To teach the history of this country is to be anti-white. Haven't we heard that? Again, we know this song. <laughs> we know this song. And we can sing it forwards and backwards and it does not help us move forward. So I think that we could play, we play a game of bingo. We recognize that. Put it to the side. Now let's have the real conversation. And the problem that I see with it as well is that when you put this next to the rise in anti-Semitism, are we doing Jewish victims of this current era any favors by misrepresenting what they are going through or misrepresenting what the people of Palestine are going through. It's not going to, it's not going to solve the problem. So we are now back to Laura's profound question. 
How do we envision things the day after? I hope you're not asking me to answer that. Yes, I am, Laura. (laughs) I will only say that you're right for a start. If we if we misuse real terms like anti-Semitism, then how do we have a grapple with the real thing? If we don't use this moment, it seems to me, to talk, have all the difficult conversations and focus on finding some ways to live together as people on a planet, but specifically in the Middle East, we're just destining ourselves to go through this over and over again. I think if you look at any of the peace processes as failed as they may have been or as weak or imperfect as they may have been in Northern Ireland, in South Africa, Australia, you name it, there is a truth and reconciliation piece of it. We do have to talk honestly about what has happened, all of it, mm-hmm. and then figure out how do we live together. And I frankly believe that's going to be the work of this century. I've- how do we do this differently? And I think it should be the work of the century to pick up on what you're saying for us to return to strengthening the UN rather than weakening it. Mm-hmm. The very idea that the countries who were most responsible for creating what we now call the Israeli-Palestinian crisis before we called it the Israeli-Hamas war are the ones who are pumping money in, who are supposedly the chief negotiators in resolving it, that's not going to, I'll just say it flat out. Yeah, it's my opinion, but I also think it's factually correct. And it's been proven to be that will not solve the problem. Otherwise, for 75 years, it would have been solved by now. And as ironic as it is, that Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed the same year as the creation of the state of Israel. How fantastic would it have been if that state had been the true expression of that document? And maybe it still could be. Maybe that would be a demand for Israel. I started this by saying, if the UN could really take control of this situation rather than really the United States and Great Britain, because it's a one-sided tipping of the balance. But even as we look at the UN, we have to, I remember that the UN does come about, as you say, ironically, the year that Israel is formed. But we have this thing called the Balfour Declaration of the British, that when they, quote, acquire Palestine, once again, this colonization problem that we're not dealing with, which was the root of the war to end all wars that did not, that they simply decide that because they have acquired Palestine from the Ottoman Empire, that they have the right to then simply say to Palestine, we will do with it as you please. When the UN came into being, unfortunately, the UN continued some of that in the name of internal policy. And there was a group of black people who petitioned the UN at the height of segregation and of the civil rights movement in force. Let's face it, people never stopped fighting against being 
abused and wrongly treated. But the official civil rights movement starts six years later as part of a global move for independence of peoples of color against colonization, against apartheid, against segregation. And the UN declined to hear the petitions of the black people. And as I say in my book, Freedom Days, dismissing the appeal of those African-Americans as a, quote, internal colonial matter. The UN Conference Secretary General protected the imperialistic West and refused to consider the West Indian plea, the African-American plea. So we also do have to reinform the UN and reshape some of these rules that protected European imperialistic ideals. So maybe we scratch the UN. Maybe your suggestion could be amended to... Or dismissed. We can have it be stronger. <laughs> we, the UN could still be stronger and not weaker in the world. Yeah. But maybe we hand the Middle East crisis, as we used to call it, over to a different group of people altogether. And one of the groups I'm thinking of, it doesn't really exist, but I think of Hanan Ashrawi from oh, the Palestinian Authority years yes. ago. Still a, a compassionate voice. Um, she was recently on Amanpour and Company. There you go. Why not her? And is her name Victoria Silver, the grandmother currently held hostage by Hamas, who has been working for peace for decades? Maybe we just leave it to them. Maybe what we bring in the grandmothers excellent suggestion. and we say, yes. you figure this out. Because I think that's not a terrible prescription for a lot of our problems. Hand it over to some good grandmothers. But in this case, there are leaders of constructive, forward-looking peace movements, mostly disproportionately women on both sides. And Voices for Peace is all Jewish Voices for Peace is also massively disproportionately women. I'm just saying. Maybe that's a better. Maybe we need some new institutions, or maybe we just need to get real local. But that's my suggestion for today. That's your suggestion for today, and we're going to leave it there. Let's hear it for the grandmothers of the world. Yay, I'm one. And Laura, it's just been such a privilege to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest has been Laura Flanders, extraordinary journalist. We haven't even begun to touch the surface of her career, as I would have loved to have asked her all these different questions. But right now, we have had the privilege of hearing her expertise and her perspective on what is going on in our world today and how we, as people of conscience, can make a difference. Thank you for joining us. I'm Janice Adams. Our thanks to Laura Flanders and to you for joining us today on The Janice Adams Show. For more about our guest and her show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. Produced in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.